um, the next uh, part of the program. Uh, uh, my name is Jerry Friedland, and I'm the co-chair for this meeting, and my apologies for being late. It's really wonderful to see um, friends and colleagues here and to uh, participate in what is now, as you heard, uh, the 20th, uh, uh, 20th meeting of this group. Uh, and we've always sort of looked back and appreciated how this meeting has really spanned much of the history of the HIV epidemic um, and how interesting it is to see where we started from and where we are now. So the, uh, the next uh, session is going to be a case-based panel discuss discussion led by Dr. Michael Sag. You all know him by reputation and by previous introduction and by his wonderful talk early this morning. Um, so welcome again, Mike. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to run through about six cases if we get to them all. That, it's fine if we don't get to them all. Uh, do things a little bit differently because uh, there's a couple of the cases that be interesting to hear your thoughts. So there are microphones on the floor, and at, at any moment that you feel the muse, feel, uh, just come on and get to the microphone and uh, voice your opinion, ask a question, whatever you'd like to do. We'll kind of go back and forth between us, and, and that will uh, allow a little bit more uh, dynamic uh, interaction here. Uh, when you do come to the microphone, try to just be brief um, so we can keep it moving. Keep your, try to keep your question about 20 to 30 seconds or so, and we'll, we'll also be truncated on the answers, and that will keep the program moving along. All right. So I call this Strategies for Antiretroviral Therapy from Sane to Crazy, and you'll hear why I said that later as we, as we move through. Now, to have a little bit more fun with this, let's assume that both the quad pill that you heard Tripp talk about earlier today and its components, that's the COBE, the COBE Sistat, is available for use, and that also dolutegravir is already on the market. As, as Tripp mentioned, the quad is at the FDA now for its phase threes. The dolutegravir is fully enrolled through its phase threes, although we haven't seen the data, but let's assume it works uh, as it did in the phase two studies in the sense for naive patients getting about a 85% uh, success rate uh, by intent to treat. So let's get started. This is a 30-year-old guy who on a routine insurance exam is diagnosed as being HIV positive. His past medical history is remarkable only for diet-controlled hypertension. He's not on any medicines, understands the issues about HIV and the virus, and wants to begin therapy if you think it's appropriate. So you get back the data. His viral load is 30,000. The CD4 count is 650. He's otherwise asymptomatic. Would you recommend him starting therapy today or the next month or two? Uh, let's go ahead and vote. It's a question of time and space. <laughs> He's just entered the, the twilight zone. Let's see. All right. So. This, this is great because I think I ask the same question every time I come to the meeting, and the answers change. It's fantastic. So, Dr. Gulick, thoughts? Well, so this guy's asymptomatic, and his CD4 650 viral load 30,000. We as New Yorkers know recently that our commissioner of health now explains that the Department of Health feels here in New York we should be offering antiretroviral therapy to all HIV-infected people, regardless of CD4 cell count. Mm -hmm. We were only a year behind the San Francisco people. So, so let's hear about from the San Francisco peoples. Uh, we're going to be in agreement, I think. Okay. And there was a, there was a paper at Croy uh, about the San Francisco experience, and in essence it showed that indeed the CD4 counts on average went up a fair amount as they adopted this policy, and that actually all things sort of improved. Complications got better, the treatment, uh, and it was a generally very positive experience. Uh, Jerry, do you, do you have a counter view to represent the 24%? Well, I do. 24%. Um, and, and not just to uh, continue the discussion, but I think I would uh, still be a three. And although I would offer but I wouldn't necessarily recommend until I knew more about this guy. Okay. What would you like to know? Well, um, 
I'd like to know what he understands about HIV. I'd like to know that he appreciates that this is a lifelong commitment at this point and, um, and uh, maybe some experience with, since he has hypertension, with what his um, experience in taking antihypertensive meds has been and how inherent he has been because, as we know, the major problem with antiretroviral therapeutic success and prevention is really taking your meds. So I want to make sure he's fully educated, even though he's um, socioeconomically uh, um, well off. Uh, and I, I, I don't think, uh, I still don't think this is an antiretroviral emergency. I think that this is something that still merits the kind of discussion that we've had with patients in the past to make sure that they're really ready to commit themselves to lifelong therapy. And I'd also want to know something about his, um, his sexual partners and mm -hmm. uh, what the public health implications might be for him at this point in time. Okay, Trip. Just one last thing to add. I think since the 052 data came out and showed that treating the positive person is highly effective in reducing transmission to negative partners. I've had a number of patients come forward and say, that's the reason I want to start now. Yeah. And that may be what's going on. I, I like Jerry's idea of exploring why he's considering antiretrovirals. Sure. But in the past year, that's been a very compelling reason to start someone. Right. And these, case, and these cases are obviously hypothetical. You don't want to go into a lot of detail. Otherwise, everybody gets bogged down and you really get distracted in the case presentation. But I think the point I'm really trying to make here is, is in this slide. So today he's got a CD4 count of 650 and he's 30 years old. And we might wait till he gets down to 500 or you could pick your number. But let's say there's a five-year gap in time between 650 and 500. Let's say you're one of the 500 starters. So if we start him on therapy at age 30 and he lives a fairly normal lifespan, even just to age 70, uh, that's going to be a total of about 40 years on therapy. If we waited until his CD4 count was 35, that's 35 years on therapy. It's not a whole lot of difference here. All the issues that, that Jerry mentions are at play regardless of whatever his CD4 count is. And I think this is kind of the big picture that, that we all want to focus on. And we're really only talking about a five-year difference out of a lifespan. He, once he goes on therapy, all the things still apply. Um, and I think when we pull back and look at this, it's, it's important that, to me, one of the questions is, is there any harm that's being done in that five years when he's off therapy? And you've heard about cardiovascular risk that could be involved, maybe not, or set up. Later this afternoon, you heard about neurologic complications. Are those actually worsened by waiting? I don't know. But I think this is just a big overall perspective. We've already mentioned a couple times the HPT and 052, and I'm showing it again mostly just to reemphasize the point that Tripp just made and that a lot of patients find it very compelling. And that one case, that one transmission that occurred in the immediate therapy group, and these are the matched transmissions, the ones that by genotypic analysis clearly went from partner A to partner B within that relationship, um, that that one transmission occurred prior to the time, with, early on in other words, before the infected partner became undetectable. And so, in essence, after that point in time, as you would suspect, and from a lot of previous data, uh, transmission events are, I would say, uncommon to rare. And uh, more needs to be seen there. But to me, treatment is prevention. It's not as prevention. So uh, I agree, but I think uh, add a word of caution that as more people think about treatment as an element of prevention, which as you've shown, works very well. We need to remind people that there are other sexually transmitted infections out there. Um, and we've seen, obviously, especially in, in gay men, a, a, a real increase in syphilis and other STIs. So um, this should not take the place of barrier protection still. That's right. Good point. Jerry? Well, uh, yes, I agree with everything um, that you said in terms of the duration of uh, antiretroviral therapy. But, uh, Still, I think in the 052 study, these were study participants, um, serodiscordant um, with a steady partner and a long-term partner, and that is not the situation with all patients, and we can't necessarily transpose the results of the study to the ordinary or 
other clinical situations or right. sexual situations. So again, I think it's very, very important not to get, um, still be sober about mm -hmm. um, what it means to start antiretroviral therapy and what the consequences are both for the individual and for partners or multiple partners and that's still our obligation to do and not just jump into therapy. Right. I mean, and to the word of caution too that all the studies that we saw uh, again at CROI showing that kind of across the board still a, a fraction of people have achieved full viral suppression mm -hmm. uh, in population based. Right, out of the population. Within individual clinics, I think all of you probably track your own practices. Uh, that number for us has been steadily going up annually, which is encouraging. Uh, and we've got a pretty tough-to-treat population, I'm sure like a lot of you do. Uh, several years ago, say a decade ago, only about uh, 45 to 48 percent were less than uh, 50, and now we're at around 72 to 73 percent. Some clinics are at 80, 90 percent. Yeah, Jerry? I want to make one other point. In your case presentation, you said that he wants to start therapy, mm -hmm. and that's a very important point. Yeah. I think many of us still encounter patients with IRC before counts who aren't ready to start. Right. And you still have to bring patients, or patients themselves have to come to the point of being ready. Right. We should also add there is a randomized study going on right now that's looking at this question called the START study. Mm -hmm. Good name for it. Above right. 500, it randomizes people either to start right away or wait until it falls to 350, um, which is more in line with the international guidelines rather than the national guidelines. Yeah, and that program, that study is still enrolling. It's about half enrolled. It still, I think, has the potential for answering very, very important questions still in terms of the when to start question, which involves both individual health as well as public health issues. And it's not only looking at AIDS, but importantly at non-AIDS related events, so kidney, liver, heart, neurologic, and cancer events as well. So you've already heard some of my personal bias when I was presenting earlier, and I talked about the AZT trial being hooked, in my view, saddled to a CD4 count on when to start. And I think this is a disease, this is biology. And virus replicating in the body at high levels I don't think is necessarily a good thing. I know the drugs have toxicities, but they've gotten better. And the once a day stuff has come on, it's made me lean towards personally earlier intervention as the New York uh, State Department of Health has recommended. And then the prevention city. stuff on top. City. 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 Soon to be state, maybe. And... Um, and, and that is that is important. Uh, and then to me, the story here is really the biology. Uh, this just shows that if viral load is, is related to transmission, if, if nothing else. And we yeah, see but, but biology has to be linked to behavior. Sure, of course. And I think that, that point's been well made. So now let's say he agrees to start, you want to start. What, -nuc what nucleoside backbone would you recommend? Uh, and you might choose no nukes here. Go, go ahead and vote. He's assuming he's HLA B5701 negative. Television theme songs for 50. Okay, so the data across the country would mostly support Tenofovir FTC. You assumed, I think correctly, his renal function is normal. Um, panel? Any disagreement with that? A lot of these answers are, of course, good ones. Uh, uh, Bakovir 3TC is fine. A lot of people still use AZT and 3TC, but the tolerability is, is more difficult. It's only an approved or accepted. It's not really preferred. Uh, so the audience voted with the preferred recommendation in the guidelines for fixing. Yep. Right. So now we've got a 30-year-old. Let's assume. Let's say his. But, his but I would say that the only really wrong answer to me here is the back or the um, uh, AZT. I mean, I think today AZT, in my mind, doesn't belong in a first-line regimen unless somebody really has, you know, unusual right. constellations of contraindications. Right. And we're going to bookmark that comment for the uh, third case. Um, so let's say his creatinine is 1.6 and his EGFR is 55. Uh, so this is a 30-year-old, and he's got hypertension, as we discussed. So uh, let's see how that changes what we do. He's B5701 negative. Let's go ahead and look. Yeah. 
So a lot of people don't realize that that one line right in the middle is, let's ride with the family down the street through the courtesy of Fred's two feet. Most people don't know that. All right, so we jumped to a Bacavere 3TC, um, which I think is a good choice in this setting. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, that's, that's a very reasonable one. It doesn't have the... Um... Right, so look at this. How did this get in here? It's a San Francisco VA Medical Center study. <laughs> do you know anybody there? Do you know Do you know somebody at the San Francisco VA? Yeah, no, I, I used to. I'm still I'm still there actually. Okay. Still, uh, well, you want to take us through this a little bit? This is a study that was done at your place, and uh, it was looking at renal uh, intolerance. Uh, right. And so side effects. Yeah, I mean the. the and, uh, and there have been other uh, studies. Uh, Amanda uh, Mocroft had a, had a previous uh, finding that was, that was pretty comparable. And, you know, we've known over the years that there is a renal signal for tenofovir. Usually I, I think of it as a, a, an unusual, often kind of early in the, in the, in the, in the course of the drug's uh, exposure. But uh, this study used a, the advantage of this huge database of, uh, of VA patients, which they're not like regular patients. I mean, there are very few women, uh, and of course, but um, they get most of their care in a cap in the, in the data is captured in the system. The lab data is very well captured as well as the pharmacy data. So it's it's a pretty believable study to me that shows that there is over time an accumulating, still uncommon, but an accumulating uh, incidence of chronic kidney disease. Um, that, and that tenofovir was an independent risk factor for that. Right. So the, I think the, rel the term here that's very important, and you can pull the paper, it's just been published uh, a couple weeks ago, the, the key term is relative risk. So the overall incidence wasn't terribly high, and, it's, and that part's not new. And actually the overall findings aren't terribly new uh, because this was shown in Joel Galanson, as you mentioned, Amanda Mocroft. But I think what was nice about it is that it's a large number, it's 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 well done study, and they looked at three different things, proteinuria development of, rapid decline, which wasn't all that common, and then the, the uh, progression to chronic kidney disease, which they defined as a uh, uh, creatinine uh, EGFR of, of less than 60. And this was, um, this shows the relative risk over time, and uh, I think the important one to look at is after the greater than three years in, in a couple of these uh, factors. But uh, overall, it was about a 33% relative risk increase. Can I just ask, yeah. Paul, one thing that's come up about the interpretation of the data is one that you alluded to, and these are veterans being followed in the VA system, so presumably have higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, other chronic diseases. Um, which may make these results less generalizable to other populations. Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked uh, in, in great detail, but I think you're right. I think it tends to be a somewhat, somewhat older population, um, but if mostly the fact that there are men with a high smoking, uh, I think, is a, is, a re is a real issue. So I think it's going to be higher than in a, in a population with less renal risk factors. And at Croy, uh, I looked carefully to see what, what Tripp was presenting and then uh, thought I would augment with a few other uh, updates. So this one is one of the studies from a group called Scenix, and it's uh, eight sites around the country that have electronic medical records. It's a little bit more generalizable because it's at clinics like you practice in, um, men and women, uh, very nicely balanced in terms of all the, uh, the demographics. And out of 3,500 patients starting therapy between 2000 and 2010, the typical distribution of, of uh, nukes and non-nukes. But what was interesting, I think, in this study was the incidence of new laboratory abnormality in the first two years of therapy. And you'll see that the take-home point here is that the hematologic, the liver, uh, the renal, and the lipids all occurred early in, on average so that Following people like you always do very closely as they start therapy, that's a good thing to do because the abnormalities are going to be a little bit more, maybe a lot more frequent in that first 16 weeks. And what I thought was pretty reassuring is, especially if you look at the renal uh, incidence, so it's a little bit different than relative risk. This is actual occurrences, uh, was about 1.8 per 100 patient years after starting therapy when you go beyond the 16 weeks. And I thought that was uh, assuring in terms of looking at the other numbers here. They broke it down a little bit more and then said for each 
the things that increase the likelihood of problems, and it gets maybe to Tripp's point about the population at the VA, for each decade of age, um, uh, relative uh, risk goes up uh, by 86% uh, or so. Uh, females were a little bit more likely to have renal problems than males. Um, and for the higher CD4 counts, it was protective. So, again, underscoring maybe the benefits of, of earlier therapy, at least in terms of this toxicity. And hypertension, like our patient had, um, actually is a fairly significant factor for having trouble with renal uh, toxicity. And that was, that was maintained, as you see in the last line there, after 16 weeks of therapy. So, just, just to yeah. add one thing. One of the things about tenofovir renal toxicity, it really does take months to even over a year before it manifests because it's a cumulative toxicity on the tubules. Um, and so your data are a little bit surprising that well, actually over time renal abnormalities went down. Right, and I think there's probably other factors that were associated with why the renal stuff early on. But still, I think the take-home point is that the way we're practicing is, is I think, on target. Um, and as just to kind of keep our eye open for uh, these types of toxicities over time, like we always do, we check uh, creatinines at every visit, et cetera. But, but of course, uh, but when, as we come under more and more cost controls, I think the frequency of how we're ordering lab tests is going to have to be part of our discussion, too. And yep. there is a surprising cost or at least the charge for lab tests is, is really amazingly high. Um, so I, I think we we should be studying this and, and right. how to practice more cost-effectively as well. And, for example, CD4 counts don't have to be obtained at every visit once somebody's been undetectable for so quite a while. Can I ask a question? So um, the uh, tenofovir toxicity is a kind of first a Fanconi-like syndrome. And before renal failure, usually with just some leakage of uh, different electrolytes. And um, so is there information about when the hypophosphatemia appears and whether that happens before renal failure? Just thinking in terms of screening and uh, predicting renal failure. Most of this isn't really, I think, isn't really the Fanconi syndrome. So I think those are those are really severe ones that were reported early on uh, that we see, I think, still see very rarely. To me, this is more of the, the kind of the hypertensive kind of uh, mm -hmm. renal failure that you see, just chronic, chronic kidney disease. But, but I think proteinuria and microalbuminemia first, first really yeah. before you see increases yes. in creatinine. So proteinuria is easy because many of us right. check a UA. But it's not specific. No, but not specific, but new proteinuria and someone yeah. on Correct. Okay. So that's one thing you can look for, but again, if we're trying to contain costs, the best test for that would be microalbuminuria, but that takes extra money and time. And I think with the relative risk being as low as it is overall, the actual incidence, we have to look at the cost-benefit of that. Let's move on to, say, what we would put as this anchor drug. Um, so you've got the same guy, CD4 counts 650, viral loads 30,000. Uh, remember, now we have uh, uh, quad available, dolutegravir available. Sort of vote your conscience. Assume he's a CCR5 tropic. Um, so the people under the age of... 40 probably don't recognize that music outside that it was classical, but that was Alfred Hitchcock's theme song. So we have about 60% for Favrens and a smattering of others, all of which are reasonable answers for a viral load of 30,000, CD4 count of 650. Panel comments or thoughts? Great to use antiretroviral therapy in 2012, right? We have so many good <laughs> options. Yeah. The, uh, the audience yeah. clearly voted the preferred, one of the preferred options in the guidelines, and I'm guessing it's because of the convenience of the one pill once a day regimen. Um, there are other great choices here as well. Yeah, and we could probably spend the whole time going through the nuances. But let's now increase his viral load to 310,000 and reduce the CD4 count to 65. So, all right, so same, same question, R5-tropic. C465, viral load 310,000. Let's go ahead and vote and see who. Jim Lang? No? I think it is. That's for number one. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
All right, efavirenz actually was reduced. We ought to talk about that. And adazanib and ritonavir, both the PIs sort of jumped to the front. The quad moved up. Um, it's great practicing in 2012. Uh, this is superstition. <laughs> yeah. What you saw here was a switch from efavirenz to PI-based regimens. There's no data to support that approach. In, in fact, fact it's the opposite. data to show efavirenz works for low CD4s or high viral loads. So I would uh, – it's not wrong, but – um, well, PI-based regimen, not necessary. Yeah, it's exactly the reason that I put the question in there, because um, initially, if you, again, it goes back to historical stuff. Nevirapine was the first non-nuke, and it's a pretty good drug, actually. It, and you, you know not to use it with higher CD4 counts, like in the last question. Now, nevirapine, eh, it's okay, but it, did, it wouldn't have quite the oomph, partly because it's not quite as potent overall as a Favren's but also because it wasn't developed at a time when 3TC was around and efavirenz was. And so it got kind of a bad name, but it left a bad name with the non-nukes in general. And then study after study after study where they've broken down by higher or lower viral load and, and higher or lower CD4 counts, efavirenz performs just as well in a patient like this as it does in the other patient. Uh, the drugs that are having a little bit of struggle uh, one is ropivirine at the higher viral loads, and raltegravir once a day, if you were to use that, doesn't work quite as well um, overall, but also especially when the viral load is higher. Of course, the, uh, the uh, PIs work well, um, except that tolerability for things like uh, lopinavir is much worse when the CD4 count is lower, I think because of reasons of just toxicity um, overall. So any other comments? Not, well, nevirapine has been shown to not work as well with, uh, with higher, viral yeah. loads above 100,000. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a lot of experience with the quad with people with very high viral load levels. Right. So here's something that's been talked about a lot, and you could flip this question around a couple ways. If we said virologic success is X, but I don't think that's really the question. The question is, where do you, where do you personally view virologic failure? Failure. What, what value... Would you say, gosh, if it's above this, I, I think I need to, to do something different. Uh, What's that got to do with basketball? Well, I don't know, because I mean, it was about success. It was about success. And the University you of Louisville, there, yeah, they're still in the game. I just wanted to get something in there about it. How is that failure? <laughs> All right, something to discuss. Um, <laughs> oh, we have a couple, 0.8%. Yay. The Louisville Cardinals. That was so, That was <laughs> Okay, okay. Fair enough. I voted twice. Um, so uh, what do you think? What's the ACTG say about virologic failure, Trip? The ACTG, and it's reflected in the DHHS guidelines, would say number three is correct, persistent yeah. over 200. And the guidelines actually say particularly above 500. And the reason that they say that is there was a, a study that has not been published yet that looked at the risk of virologic rebound with different thresholds for, uh, for, for viral load like this. And they could not find a difference between being persistently between 50 and 200, and then just slightly over 200, between 200 and, and 500. So they evened it out and said 200 is a reasonable cutoff. And some folks may have picked 1,000 because that's where you can start getting resistance assays results back, but you can't do that at, <laughs> at 250. So uh, I actually said 50 just because uh, it, uh, while you commonly see low level, in, in my experience, and it's not much experience anymore is that usually those kind of go back and forth and mm -hmm. persistingly above limits yeah. of detection. I, I, I would worry about that at least. So yeah. let, let me correct what I said. There was no difference in the ACTG between being less than 50 and between 50 and 200. There was no in, increased risk of virologic failure right. between those. So some of that, when you're less than 200, some of that wobble is, is from at least two things and probably more, and uh, Mario Stevenson likely will talk about this indirectly uh, later. Um, 
But the, it could be that the assay, no, it actually is, that the assay itself, as you get towards a lower limit of detection, has a lot of variability, a lot of wobble. And that could be what we're seeing. And the second right. thing is, is that reservoirs of, of lately infected cells can be stimulated to release virus, even if there's not any de novo replication. And so you might be seeing some of that uh, as well. So um, it, it hasn't been associated clinically with failure, as, as Tripp mentioned. I just wanted to go over that because it, it was uh, some new emerging uh, uh, data on that. But I do think the operative word is persistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. And not the single episode right. of that, actually probably any, any of those, or at least the lower ones. Yeah. Exactly. So we're back to the same guy. And... This viral load's 30,000, CD4 count is 250. Um, well, I'm sort of combined what I thought you might say, and let's go ahead and vote on this. This is going in a different direction. I just want, I'm just trying to set it up. So we'll have this vote real quick and then go to the next slide. So. Charlie's Angels? You know, I have a vision right? of you guys just sitting and listening to music all day long. Well, we could. Think how smart Mike would be well, if he at, did at, at lunch, we'll just play old show tunes and stuff and have fun. Okay, so you pick. So nobody did the other. Here's here's the here's the twist. You receive a fax from the patient's insurance company <laughs> that the treatment has been changed to zidovudine three TC nevirapine because it's on formulary as generic. Your response: WTF. <laughs> You're going to get the vote. You're going to get the vote. Or two, you carefully explain the toxicity. Or three, you agree to try the generic and change. Let's go ahead and vote. <laughs> <laughs> Any bets on how many go for number one? This is New York, number one. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> New York! <laughs> hey, well, You're behaving like Alabama. <laughs> You're being nice and kind. No, no. We're, we all know that if you say WTF on one of those calls, they just hang up on you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we're sort of laughing and we're kind of shrugging this off, but this day is, has already arrived mm -hmm. at some locations. Kathleen Clannon in Oakland was saying that uh, they've been getting phone calls like this. Has anyone actually had that happen here? Show of hands, a couple people. So this is the future. Why? Because one of the regimens that we had on the first uh, uh, depends on the negotiated rates, but could be as much as $12,000 per year per patient. And if we get uh, an all-generic regimen, especially if we translate it to what's paid in sub-Saharan Africa, it's maybe like $200. That's a big difference. And the companies could argue, well, 40% of people are going to have success with AZT3GC nevirapine. So maybe we should try that first. And look at all the cost reduction. If you were a, a pencil sharpener um, and doing math, you could see an awful lot of savings when you're talking about lifelong therapy, even though I'm not sure how much of a life you can stay on AZT3GC nevirapine. Uh, we're doing it in sub-Saharan Africa because we have to, but um, we may be having to here. And this is just kind of giving you a glimpse of the future. The drugs that are already generic are here, coming off patent uh, soon, going out to 2017 are a lot of the drugs we commonly use. So that's not too far away. Comments from the panel. I think by the, by the time you get the 2014-17 uh, drugs, you know, you some pretty good options yeah. there. You know, I think, but I, I think in, until you get... Um, some good ones like Efavirenz available, it's going to be hard to construct a good regimen, I think. Yeah, so just to kind of get everyone thinking, because, again, it's not too hard to imagine, and it's happening in every other field. Psychiatry has done a pretty good job of fighting this off because the nuances about one drug working for a person but other drugs in the same class not. And I think we just need to be prepared with data, and answer two is probably the most appropriate answer just to kind of reason with them. But... Who has time? How many people have extra time in their day to deal with this? Right. Yeah. I think one. I think one question though that we should have better data, and I don't think we have great data now. Is you know we talk about the convenience of a single pill, but 
it would be nice to be able to come back with some real data that the adherence is better in the long-term outcomes. Right, but they might provide the generic as a single pill, like Trivir or something. All right, so here's a 42-year-old guy diagnosed about a decade ago, has taken most of the drugs on and off for years uh, on a current boosted darunavir regimen. His current CD4 counts 33. Uh, a couple months ago it was 76. You repeat his viral load. It's 128,000. He tells you it's a pan-sensitive virus, so you know the drill. It goes back to why the PrEP studies didn't work. If you don't take the medicines, they don't work. And you talk to him, and he says, I'm just not going to take any medicine. And you ask him why, and he says, well, my grandmother took pills, and she died. Has anybody had a patient or something similar to that? Right. So what do you do in a case like this? You, you, you ask what medicines do you want to take, when do you, when do you think you want to, and do you have your affairs in order? <laughs> Go ahead and vote. That's yeah, magical thinking for sure. They did a good job of capturing the essence of these songs, didn't they? Okay. So, you all had patients like this? Yep. What do you, what do you, how do you manage? This is one from literally a week ago Wednesday. I just thought, I was just wondering, uh, this is sort of a universal thing. And there's other, there's other sort of answers you get, but that I thought was uh, an interesting one. We had, we had one a, a couple of weeks ago at the VA who had taken AZT back in the day, and, and he, he, so, many, so many side effects that he just went off treatment altogether, came back with one CD4. You know, it's a tragic uh, thing, yeah. not keeping it. Yeah. And that's a little bit better scenario. At least that's a little bit more rational. That's why I titled this thing From Sane to Crazy. I don't think this guy's got a psychiatric illness. He's not depressed. He's just crazy. I don't know how to deal with this kind of thinking. I don't know if that's a DSM-4 diagnosis, but it's just kind of crazy. You know, one thing to note is a lot of our patients are scared about side effects from the drugs. The regimen that he is on is one of the most side effect-free regimens that there are. It'd be good to just talk to them about, have you actually tried it, and how did yeah, you feel on it? Yeah, that's right. And, and like you said earlier, it's good to be in 2012. I mean, think about where we used to be, going back to the talk at the beginning of the day, when you only had a couple of drugs, and there's handfuls, and pretty toxic. Um, or having a patient after you explain all the side effects, and they come back at the next visit, and they said, you told me all these bad things were going to happen, and I don't feel a thing. <laughs> Is there really something in those pills you're giving them? <laughs> giving placebo. So here's our fourth case. Uh, it's a similar story that, in this case, uh, on the boosted darunavir with raltegravir, and yet it's failing. The regimen's failing. And now you check, and he's got pan-resistant virus with a strand transfer integrase inhibitor resistance at position 148. So it's SSTI resistance at 148. So what anchor drug would you use in this setting, assuming you can find something to cobble together uh, in this setting? Resistance to strand transfer inhibitors, pan-resistant otherwise, go ahead and vote. What's the B, Mike? Boost. The B is boosted, so it could be cobacistat if you want. Okay, let's see what we got. Ah, a well-informed audience. Okay. It, you do the best you can, and there's likely you're not going to be able to pair the dolutegravir with anything. The, the take-home point from this is that uh, the dolutegravir will have some residual activity, potentially against a 148 a mutation, 155, sometimes more. Trip, you want to take us through that a little bit? Yeah, so there are three patterns to integrase inhibitor resistance. This guy would be likely to have resistance because he's failed on raltegravir. And then you actually got the genotype to show you that it's, he's failing with the 148 mutation. When someone fails an integrase inhibitor, they almost always have two or three mutations, not just one. 148 of the three is the one that, that knocks out raltegravir, elvitegravir, and can also knock out dolutegravir. Um, they've tried doubling the dose, and that's why many people in the audience, I think, chose that. Dolutegravir is available by expanded access right now, but people should be really careful in someone who has pan-resistant virus about just adding it as a single drug. 
Because you know what will happen. The, yeah, these right. drugs have a low barrier to resistance, and it's likely he will simply select out resistant virus within a few weeks. And this, yeah, this guy is one of those rock and a hard place guys right. we, we had a lot more of, you know, but 10 you years can, ago. You, you should be checking a, a profile on him as yep. well, right? Yep, yes. absolutely. Trying to find at least two drugs. I mean, this is, you, you all know that, uh, that information from the past. Uh, Joe Aaron had a, a poster, I believe, at, at Croy last year uh, that demonstrated that twice a day, uh, Dalutegra 50 twice a day, actually had a fair amount of activity in this setting as opposed to once a day. But um, it's, it's, it's tenuous, and you want to you want to back it up if you can. That was the whole Just point. Just to say, we're enrolling a similar study to that right now with twice a day dolutegravir. People are interested. There's some wrong choices here that we should Please, go ahead. So this guy was pan-resistant and was on darunavir and raltegravir. So either one of those is a pretty suspect choice. Um, L-vitegravir, as we said, would be cross-resistant with the 148, so that's not going to be a very good choice. Etravirine, all we know is that he took a lot of non-nukes, perhaps could have some activity. Uh, real pivirine, likely to be resistant to that as well. I well, can't get the dose high enough, uh, so the etravirine, if you're going to go that way, would probably be a better choice, and levels are much, much higher. Um, but the good news, I think, at least from my practice, and hopefully you're seeing the same thing, I don't have many patients like this anymore. Um, that they're fail it's more like the first one who's a little bit crazy and I'm trying to, to work them through things and uh, so this is fortunately not all that common. Can we actually ask the audience how many people right now are following a patient who's resistant to darunavir, etravirine, and raltegravir? Raise your hand if you have that kind of patient. Not that many. Not 1.2% again. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Hang in there. All right, so this is a, a, a quickly a case that really is pitched to Jerry. Uh, Jerry, as you know, does an awful lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa where there's uh, just an, a rampant epidemic of tuberculosis of all sorts. But this is a 34-year-old woman diagnosed with TB. As part of a routine evaluation, she was found to also be HIV positive. Her CD4 counts 82, viral load 76,000. Otherwise healthy and no other significant medical condition. She gets started on the appropriate um, TB therapy, including INH and rifabutin. Uh, and her virus is wild type. At what time, remember her CD4 counts in the 80s, at what time after starting anti-TB therapy would you start ART? Let's go ahead and vote. Missed that one. All right, let's see what we got. Okay. Okay. Dr. Friedland, you, you know a lot about this. You did the uh, study. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, there isn't an absolutely right or wrong answer except after she has finished her TB regimen because um, there's clear evidence that you should treat HIV and TB concomitantly, so waiting until after finish the TB regimen is going to put people at risk for um, mortality, actually, and that's been well shown. Um, the question of when during the course of tuberculosis therapy, um, I think it's been relatively well answered now, not for each individual patient, but in general, um, if the CD4 count is less than 50, everyone would agree that they should start within two weeks. Um, if it's above 50, then it gets a little more complicated. I think someone, if someone is perfectly asymptomatic as this individual was, I think. As outside of her TB, yeah. Outside of her TB. Um, if she wasn't anemic, if she didn't have malnutrition, if she didn't have a number of other um, independent predictors of poor outcome, you can probably wait some. Some would say even up to eight weeks. I would probably agree with the majority opinion of within two to four weeks. The major issue is the um, competing risk of iris and um, some additive drug toxicity and pill burden. Mm -hmm. um, but all of those is outweighed by early mortality with tuberculosis. Yeah, that, that's, that's really so, the key point um, is the mortality. Right. And, so and the early mm -hmm. mortality is really, I think, the, the, the key issue. Okay. And starting earlier would be better. 
But so, the, yeah. Okay. After eight weeks would probably be too late, right? In, in most of the um, studies. For CD4 count of 86? Um, I, yes. Uh, well, actually, the studies don't quite show that, um, but I think most clinicians who care for these patients right. would try to get someone on therapy sooner. Okay, so now she's on INH, rifabutin, PZA, ethambutol. You're going to start, let's say, at week four or something like that. Uh, what regimen would you choose? Low CD4 count, uh, go ahead and vote. Still don't know what that is. Okay. Okay. Majority would use the Favrins. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Uh, easiest. Um, uh, rifibutin reduces the, and this patient's on rifibutin, reduces a lot of the protease inhibitor problems. So in terms of drug interaction, but nevertheless, there's still probably more side effects with proteins and the, and the TB meds, so I think that's yep. the right choice. Do, you, do, you have, do we have any data on raltegravir yet? Um, with rifampin, yeah. rifampin will reduce raltegravir levels, so mm. that becomes a real problematic issue. Okay. Let's quickly go through the last uh, case here, um, and we'll finish right on time. So this is a 23-year-old gay man who's seronegative and lives in Manhattan. He's sexually active, estimates somewhere between one to two different partners in a month. Mm -hmm. He's heard of PrEP, and he wants your advice. He claims he would take the medicines regularly because he heard Trip Gulick's talk at the ISUSA meeting, and he knows <laughs> how important that is. What would you recommend? He's not in a steady relationship. Let's go ahead and vote. It's appropriate. Little New York music for a New York patient. Okay. Jerry. <laughs> okay, so this is a little bit of a twisted question for this audience, right? Because a lot of you, I'm, I'm assuming, are like me, and that my practice is so full with HIV-positive patients, the idea of taking on additional patients who are seronegative Maybe too much. So, what's the, what's your thinking? Let's ask. How many of you take care of HIV-negative people? Oh, all of them do. Mike. More than 2.1 percent. Okay, and certainly more than yeah, 49. Let's okay. Ask this one too. How many of you have prescribed prep to somebody? Fewer. More than yeah, last more year. Than last year. Yeah, yeah, so last year we asked this question. No one was using hmm. any and to me, I mean, exposure if, prophylaxis. If you're going to use it, use it in this in this patient. Yeah. yeah. This is somebody who. Okay. And then, medication. and then, trip from your review of the data, is there a role for tenofovir alone? Should it all should it be the Truvada sort of component? You know, the study in gay men was with tenofovir FTC. Also, there's CDC guidelines about this, and they recommend the two-drug therapy as well. Uh, the Partners PrEP study used two different arms, one with tenofovir, one tenofovir FTC, and couldn't show a statistical difference between those two. And then just to make it complicated, there's a study in women called VOICE, where they just stopped the tenofovir-only arm that kept the tenofovir FTC arm going. So it seems to me the field is sort of moving towards two drugs if you're going to use them. Right. But so shouldn't there be another choice, and that is uh, tenofovir FTC and condom use? Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> Thank you. That should have been assumed. Okay. Um, so you give him the prescription, and he comes back the next day freaked out. I can't afford this. Uh, the copay is whatever. Uh, $120 uh, or something, maybe more. So, um, or let's say he doesn't have any insurance at all. So what do you do? Do you, uh, anyone, which one of these four would you uh, recommend? Go ahead and vote. Take it to Herman Munster. Ask Eddie. Okay. So a lot of people just wave the white flag. 
<laughs> Can't help you. Uh, too busy. Uh, sorry. Does the New York Department of Public Health provide PrEP? No, there's no program. So there's no drug assistance program either. So you guys. But your wish, state's so wealthy. Wishful thinkers out there. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, one option you don't have on there, of course, is a clinical trial. Ah, so. Two one two seven four six four one seven seven. Shameless. <laughs> what was that number again? Two one two seven four six four one seven seven. Do buy the beads. Buy the beads. Standing by. <laughs> okay, and we're gonna we're gonna finish with a little bit of data, and then I'll stop. This is the uh, study that was published in the England Journal of Medicine. Bob Grant, the follow-up data trip showed you and how important adherence was. And when the levels were high consistently, it was very effective. Now, based on those data from the New England Journal of Medicine article, um, I just sat down with a little calculator and figured out, based on their incidence rates per year, that we had to treat 118 people to prevent one new infection per year. If the cost of the medicine was $12,000, at least retail, the cost to prevent one new infection was $1.5 million, and that doesn't include the clinic visits or the laboratory. The cost to treat an infected patient per year in total with everything, that is somebody who is infected, is 18500 So we'd have to treat a newly uh, infected person, we'd have to treat um, 78 years to make up for the cost difference. And so my point is, you add case whatever it was, three or two, where there's a sticker shock, right, when they're telling you to go generic, with these costs, you start to scratch your head and say, where is the cost effectiveness here? I think those data have got to be coming. If we knew everybody would take it, um, we'd be okay. So there's a lot of dancing going on here. I think I tried to make this guy as, as crystal clear of someone who might be a good candidate for PrEP. But then where do we draw the line and where is that slippery slope? Who pays? Who follows and manages them? Because unlike an HIV patient, if we give somebody proximal renal tubular dysfunction who is otherwise healthy, then that's a bigger problem. So someone who we're just kind of treating to prevent a hypothetical, uh, for 118 people to be treated to prevent one infection, that's not such a good odds. And who's, who's responsible? That person goes into renal failure. Let's say you prescribed it, but you didn't follow him as well. Are you going to be taken to court over that and other unintended consequences? So I think there's a lot of policy issues. So to conclude, um, ART initiation is recommended regardless of CD4 count in most circumstances, but especially when there's pregnancy, as Marion Peters will tell you in a little bit, HBV and HCV co-infection, of course HIV-associated nephropathy, active or high-risk cardiovascular disease, OIs of any sorts, including TB. Older age is becoming that way, and, and Joe Margulick will talk to us a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Symptomatic primary infection, most people would treat these days, and those at high risk for transmission is emerging as a reason. Unfortunately, most patients are diagnosed too late unless you've got programs like you have here in the Bronx. And then, as Jerry mentioned, social and structural barriers must be addressed, including stigma and discrimination. Cost issues may confound things. The timing of initiation of ART in TB patients varies with the severity of HIV infection, as we heard, and there are a lot of drug-drug interactions. Is PrEP ready for time, prime time? And whether we like it or not, some patients are just crazy. So thank you for your attention and uh, staying with us on this.